0: This is Be Heard right here on WHCR, 92.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Welcome, everyone, to Be Heard Talk, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of trap music, a side of Shakur, and spice to unflavored news. Each and every Sunday, we discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and we give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and we will read them throughout our show. We also want to give a special shout out and thanks to Black Enterprise, our official media sponsor for the 2020 election season. My name is Selena Hill, and I'm the digital editor at Black Enterprise and the founder of Be Her Talk. And today, I'm super excited to be with here with you all. Because later on, we have with us Alicia Garza. She is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. And she's going to be speaking to us about her new book, The Power, excuse me, The Purpose of Power. But for now, let me kick things off by introducing my co-host, starting with Stanley Fritz. Hey, Stanley.
1: Hey, Selena. What's going on? Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stanley Fritz. You can find me on Twitter. Instagram, and pretty much everywhere else at Stan Fritz. I'm your favorite engineers on the PC ones and twos. I'm also a co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash website, where we talk about patriarchy, sexism, sex, and race. For my day job, I'm the New York State Political Director at Citizen Action of New York, so I do too much stuff. But I'm hyped for this conversation today.
0: We also have with us Tammy David, our third co-host here on Be Heard Talk. How's it going, Tammy? Hey, Selena. Hey, Stanley. Thanks for letting us
2: use your house last night, Stanley, for Lovecraft Country, which is now officially um, our fave. We love a sci-fi king. Go on, sir. Um, for those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Tammy David, and I am the newest and sometimes problematic co-host here on Be Heard Talk. Uh, actually today, I would like to take a small break from talking crap and my piss poor attitude towards liberals for an exciting announcement. I wanna let you all know, drumroll, that I will indeed be voting for Joe Biden in the 2020 election on the working families party line here in New York. So essentially through this whole election, I've pledged to vote third party because I have had a difficult time siding with Democrats while they continue to disappoint us, especially locally. And I know a lot of people have been frustrated with me because I understand the implications of this election, yet I am making a moral choice that some people claimed hurt others. But this election year, I have the unique ability to both make a statement on the importance of third parties and participate in the mainstream wave to protect the future of our country. Here in New York, the Working Families Party is in danger. Uh, unlike other progressive groups like DSA and Justice Democrats, it has the power to run candidates on their ballot line. They've always used this to push progressive candidates and platforms. And this year, They're using New York State's allowance for candidates to run on multiple ballot lines and are endorsing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for presidency. Now, what this essentially does is pressure Democrats towards progressive policies like the ones that working family parties endorses while not taking votes from the only candidate that can numerically defeat Donald Trump. This year, the party is in danger thanks to a new law raising the qualification threshold. So basically, the working family party needs 200,000 votes in New York or it will lose its ballot line. So with some of my favorite progressives like AOC, Tiffany Caban, and even Stanley Fritz here on this show, who have called on us to both save American future as well as New York progressive future, how can I not? So I believe my my voice and my vote is worth fighting for the Working Families Party and I think yours should too. So if you're already voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, consider joining me on the Working Families Party Line and help us fight for unions, community organizing, and an alternative to the crappy two-party system. Uh, what? Now <laughs> After, I
0: want to, I want to ask y'all, how do you feel? You finally wore me out. <laughs> Welcome to the party, Tammy. If you guys are, are new here and Be Her Talk, uh, let me just let you know that Tammy has been very vocal and outspoken against Joe Biden. And don't get me wrong, I critique him as well and have been critical of his past record as well, and even some of the policies now on his platform. But Tammy was like, I am not voting for Joe Biden. I am, you know, so to hear that your vote, you're not, a, okay, yes, we get it. It's a vote against Trump. So we 100% understand that. But to vote for the vote, uh, voting on the working families party line is so crucial. It's so important for progressive issues because mm-hmm. like you said, this party really represents our interests and they've been doing the hard work for years.
1: No, yeah, shout out to you, Tammy. I appreciate that you're going to be doing that because now you get to do some harm reduction and voting out Trump while also some power building and supporting the Working Families Party in New York State. And the Working Families Party is very important. So I'm happy you're down in that train too. I will also be voting for Biden and Kamala on the Working Families Party line.
2: Word. I appreciate growing within this realm. And I also appreciate all of our viewers and our listeners who have taken the time, like Bianca, to DM us and really have conversations with me about sort of the future and what we can do in a blue state, regardless of how we feel on a whole. Um, Anyway, that all being said, finally, it's time for the News Roundup, which is the part of the show where you get next week's tea for your dry and over-memed group chats. This week, we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement popping off in the motherland. We're talking about racism in fashion. And finally, we're wondering, do Black women set the bar unusually high or are Black men really this disappointing? Um, for more information on any of these stories and to suggest what we should talk about next week, follow and DM us at Be Heard Talk across all social platforms. First, let's break down what's going on in Nigeria so we don't all look dumb next week when it once again covers the Wall Street Journal. What started as a grassroots movement to end police brutality in Africa's most populous country has become a global phenomenon. Hashtag end SARS. In the wake of Black Lives Matter all around the globe, Nigerian citizens are calling out police brutality in their own backyard, targeting the SARS police unit, a.k.a. the special anti-robbery squad. SARS unit officers are accused of extortion, torture, rape, and murder. And while the government has promised to disband SARS, protesters faced with weeks of police brutality have now broadened demands. So incredibly similar to ours, like having police brutality at the protests, expanding demands, they are using this opportunity to ask for economic and social policy solutions as well as civil rights relief. Unfortunately, there are those who are inciting violence towards peaceful protesters, even targeting the governor of the Osun state. However, this movement is gaining incredible traction Even being backed by celebrities like Kanye, Cardi, athletes, Nigerian superstars, and even Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. Just this week, it made its way to our presidential election with Joe Biden issuing a statement standing in solidarity with protesters. Now I'm going to throw this one to my co-hosts and get their thoughts. Selena, what is going on in Nigeria and do you think this is impacting our movement at all?
1: You're on mute,
0: now. Thank you. Uh, first of all, great introduction and, and briefing and, and giving us an overview, Tammy. But yeah, there's a lot going on in Nigeria. We know that more than 56 people have died since demonstrations began uh, more than two weeks ago. However, this is not a new phenomenon. Nigerian police have a notorious record of human right abuses, uh, brutality, and even extrajudicial killings Um, For very small and minor offenses, I'm talking bribery, uh, even having like an expensive phone or driving a fancy car. And and I just want to say that there are a number of millennial um, Nigerians who are using social media to really raise awareness about it. And that's where I've been getting most of my information. Like I heard this one young woman say a lot of the tension is also um, generational. What she's saying is like you have the millennials and the Gen Z on the ground calling for drastic change. But the older generations who happen to be their parents and a lot of elected officials are not hearing it. They've been very dismissive. We know that the president himself has been saying that, oh, like rather than talking about police killing innocent people and executing them in the streets. He's like, oh, well, you know, you protesters need to, you know, tone it down a little bit. Um, Nigeria is also a country, from what I read, that represses even peaceful protests. So these demonstrations are being met with a wave of more police violence. And again, this is something that I think we definitely need to be paying attention to, because Black Lives Matter is not just a domestic issue. This is an issue, this is a global movement that talks about issues around the diaspora when it comes to black people. And this is the time where we need to show up. You know, Yes, Black Lives Matter was founded here in the US and we're actually gonna speak to Alicia Garza, one of the architects of Black Lives Matter. But again, this was not just for us, this is about black people everywhere. So I think the best thing that we can do to stand in solidarity solidarity with Nigeria right now is educate ourselves about what's going on, use our platforms to speak up and speak out, and also make sure if you can donate and and, and give um, contributions to reputable organizations that are doing the work.
1: You know, something that we should also talk about is some people have been saying that what's happening in Nigeria is proof that police aren't people are wrong. But it's not just about the police being inherently racist. It's about the fact that the police, if we're being honest about them, they are nothing but a military arm to help uphold power. So no matter where in the world you go, that's what it's all about. It's about protecting and reinforcing power. So yeah, maybe you don't have the Proud Boys or the Boogaloo Boys out in Nigeria.
0: Stanley, we're having trouble hearing you. Run that back, Stanley. Yeah, we, uh oh, I think we may have lost Stanley's audio. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, we may have to throw it back to Stanley in a minute. But I know we are getting some really good comments. Um, Can we throw to some of the comments? People are definitely talking about Nigeria. Uh, Again, this is a global issue. And Chris G just commented via Facebook. Chris says, Nigeria is on fire because the government, because the government disappoints the youth. You are right. I mean, my question is, and I'll throw it back to you, Tammy, um, have we been paying attention? Because this this is an a uprising that's been heating up for a long time. We haven't really been paying attention, and that's something
2: really unique to Americans, I find. We're sort of in our own bubble, and we don't pay attention to what's happening internationally. But I will say that this is not a unique phenomenon. And Again, I have to call it back to a similarity that the diasporas are having across the board. Like, our youth are also really frustrated. Um, Our government is also ignoring us. And it may look slightly different, but at the end of the day, it's a really problematic, uh, imperialist, capitalist structure that enables violence against citizens for compliance.
1: Yeah. And we can't forget that the police, once again, are part of a military industrial complex that is not meant to keep people safe. It is meant to protect property and protect the rights and the interests of those who are in power. And what we really need to be doing with each other, not just in the U.S., but in Nigeria and in the entire diaspora, is have a conversation about what safety actually looks like. Because if we keep on relying on this iteration of safety, the police will always have hard to go after people. And when they go after people, they almost always go after black people, brown people, and poor people.
2: Honestly, that's the truth. So I really feel like standing in solidarity means taking a hard look at ourselves and things outside of our bubbles and continuing to do the work to educate on these systems and to think about alternatives uh, to this safety system that we call the police state. Speaking of safety and the lack of safety on the internet, uh, we have another edition of 2020 Rotting People's Brains with Black folks lusting after Medea of all things. Uh, So October 21st, this past Wednesday, will go down in history as the day that Black Twitter and inappropriately horny Twitter finally collided. Uh, a lot of us good decent church folk were clutching our pearls when Twitter named its newest sex icon, Tyler Perry. While many of us uh, were quote lusting after him, who I guess is arguably a decent hottie, uh, one unabashedly kinky user brought up Medea, commenting on what's underneath Medea's dress and another fantasizing about what he sounds like, you know, during. So the only question this story leaves me with is why? Stanley, I'm gonna throw this to you because I know you have strong, possibly sexual feelings about Tyler Perry. Do you think Medea is hot? Is it problematic that we're laughing at this right now? We
1: have zero sexual desires for Tyler Perry or Medea. No, thank you. <laughs> I just think that you need to find a cure to COVID, and I am gonna go in the kitchen and look for a cure myself because when you're in the house for that long, you start to get desperate. The next person they were lusting after was Kenya Barris. Somebody said that they wanted Medea to clap their cheeks to the hilarious people. Okay. <laughs> people are lonely. They need communication, and this is what COVID is doing to us.
2: Okay, Selena, you love Tyler Perry.
0: Do you think he's hot? First of all, I understand the thirst, okay? Tyler Perry was just introduced to the billionaire's club, okay? And Jay-Z has a very famous line. He's, he raps, and I quote, ain't no such thing as an ugly billionaire. I'm cute. Look, enough said. Tyler Perry owns the biggest studio, I believe, in the nation. He is a, an entertainment mogul. Um, he's funny. He's charming. He's over six feet, and he's been working out. Tyler looks good. Look, I'm yes. here for it. Look, whoever wants, look, let Tyler look. I'm here for it.
1: Let Tyler get love. let Tyler, let Tyler get love. <laughs> you, you, money is not a physical feature, Selena.
2: Yes, it is. No, excuse me. You are canceling every single gold digger in the world, and
0: I will not stand for that slander. Money is sexy for real. Look, look, and I don't shame people for their preference. Um, I don't even, you know, I don't even want to use the term gold digger, but I just want to say Jay Z said it first. Tyler, it look, it just makes sense. I wouldn't hate Stan. Look, just because you're nowhere near the club doesn't mean you need to hate
1: Jay Z said, I'm a billionaire, I'm cute. So, y'all co signing this, huh?
0: Okay,
2: I'm saying, I understand. Scratch the money part. He's literally six foot, dark skin, well greased, beard always on fleek. How is he not hot? I feel like objectively, we have to give him that. He, he's been working out. He got
0: the mm. abs on
1: deck. If he was making $30 <laughs> a year, y'all would not be having this conversation.
0: So we are getting some comments. We are getting some love for Tyler Perry, actually. Yes. Um, um Donnie. Harold Harris says via LinkedIn, I love Tyler Perry. We are here for it as well. Um, and Tia Mari with it also commented on Facebook. They said, they do say, I'm not ugly. I'm just broke, LOL. Um, so look, I'll say, I, I don't i do not shame people for their sexual preference and what attracts them at all. I get it. It's COVID. We've been locked in. It's is what it is. Well, I'm ready to
2: shame another Black man for his money preferences. OK, and that's if we're going to give Tyler Perry love, we're going to be giving 50 cents some hate on this show today because it isn't enough that we are essentially carrying our movement and begging for icons like Tyler Perry to get the recognition they deserve. Yet black men continue to be questionable in their allegiance to us and the work that we're doing. So 50 Cent has reconfirmed his support for Donald Trump. Yes, collective gasp gas, collective gas. After saying he, quote, doesn't want to be 20 cents, 50 cents threatened to leave the country if Trump loses the election. He is supposedly wary of Biden's tax proposals that he falsely believes will tax of his income. I have no idea where he got that number, but that is ridiculous. This comes after he previously described Trump's presidency as an accident and claimed that he had been offered half a million to endorse his campaign. So what is the truth, 50 Cent, and why, once again, are out of touch rich Black men with incorrect, if any, information coming out to defend Donald Trump? Stanley, is it possible that black men will be the ones to hand this election to Trump and not third party voters like myself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Trump administration is projected to get between 18 to 20% of black male voters in this election. And if you ask me for my unadulterated opinion, it's because they're idiots um, that they're gonna vote for Trump at this point, because I don't see how you vote for somebody who's actively fighting against you being able to live. 50 Cent was using a meme from, um, a, from a from a tax organization or a, a polling organization that uses like incorrect information to tabulate taxes, there's nowhere in the U.S. where you're going to get taxed at 62 or 58 percent of your income. What that what that company did, organization did, was they put in what happened your net tax. They also included local taxes, which the federal government has no control over, and they didn't incorporate the fact that like. You don't get taxed for all your income. You only get taxed for eligible income, which is about 39.7%. And that's what it was when Obama was president. So all the stuff that 50 is talking about is wrong. He's talking out of his behind, but what else is new? So, yeah, 50 canceled.
2: Last week, Selena, we spoke with Kwame Jackson about Black men and the ballots specifically uh, in reference to the Ice Cube situation. So I want to ask, what do you think Democrats need to be doing to get back the Black male vote? Because they got the women on lock, but they clearly
0: still have some uncomfortable conversations to be had. Great question, Tammy. They need to listen to Black men, that's number one, and uh, make sure that they have a place, a seat at the table, and that their interests are prioritized. That's one. But honestly, we also need to do some work in our own communities because the machismo and bravado that has made Donald Trump famous is unfortunately very attractive to a lot of black men. And we talked about this last week on Be Heard. I mean, again, Donald Trump was idolized in hip hop, glorified. He you know, he has pictures posting up with rappers. Um, You you know, he was he was literally what a lot of rappers uh, dreamed to be. So I understand that appeal. But this is politics. This is real life. This is not a music video. And if we don't show up and get this man out of office, he's going to continue to jeopardize our communities. White terrorists are going to continue to, to terrorize our communities. We're actually going to talk about that a little later. Uh, you know, we look at uh, white supremacist groups and their attacks have gone up under the Trump administration. This man is not healthy for us. Not only our community, but the entire world. He's he's anti climate change. Um, he he called COVID a hoax. It, it's just look, the list goes on and on. He has um used his words and his rhetoric to hurt our country, for 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 years. And it's time to get him out.
2: You know, great point about how it encourages white nationalism. I think fifty cent endorsing Trump and like continuing this cycle also means that it's going to be hard to get you know, covert racism out. We still experience a lot of racism in the workplace and in fashion and in music. And I can't believe that someone who has overcome a lot of these barriers would then co-sign someone who actively works to keep those in place just for fear, incorrect fear, by the way, of losing his money. But I guess that's just how it goes. And what we on this show tend to do is to roast and then educate.
0: Can I just say, Chelsea mm-hmm. Handler had the best roast and clap back the 50 cent. She tweeted, hey, I will pay your taxes in exchange for you coming to your senses, happily. Black Lives Matter, that's you, remember? There you go.
2: Dang. <laughs> Chelsea Handler clapped back. I did not expect that. She will be getting a gift basket from me. Mm.
1: They, dated. she said it, she said, don't. No.
2: I think we're oh, having your audio.
1: Sorry about that. She said she they dated, and she said to him, "Don't don't call yourself to stop being my favorite ex-boyfriend." Ooh. So they like, have an to issue together. Well, at
2: least there's one white woman in solidarity with us. Because the last <laughs> thing I want to talk about with y'all today is actually Anna Wintour and the crazy news about Vogue that just came out. So. Um, If y'all don't know on this show, I am very into fashion and honestly not so much the fashion industry for reasons like this. Vogue's September issue celebrated black culture and contributors in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. But some former and current employees are saying, Anna Wintour, the magazine's editor and honestly a fashion industry powerhouse has continuously fostered a workplace that sidelined women of color, especially Black women. While Winter has been touting classics alongside progressive growth, Vogue employees are coming out to paint a new picture, one of public facing growth and inward facing racism that has kept the fashion industry stagnant to change. One Black employee says that while fashion is hard and that's the way it was meant to be, The culture at Vogue was so toxic that calling something Vogue was code for thin, rich, and white, the standard that Wintour herself helped to uplift. Of 18 people interviewed for the New York Times piece by Edmund Lee, 11 thought Wintour should step down due to her knack for appropriation and cultural insensitivity, including the use of the word pick-a-ninny in an email to her staff. While A.W. has made a statement to acknowledge her mistake, she is already being criticized by colleagues for ingenuity and the use of white privilege to escape her colonizing behavior. So I want to throw this to y'all and ask you if you think there's any hope, because on one hand, we have Chelsea Handler, who is standing up to even our own people acting foolish. And on the other, you have someone who is kind of faking it to make it and then being really bad on the sidelines. Selena, can we give her credit when we see that she's become huge on terms in terms of impact on the industry and being progressive, but then is appropriative and mistreats her staff on the sidelines?
0: Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of nuance to that question, right? There's a lot of context. Um I recently had an interview with Elaine Wilteroth, who was appointed Uh, editor-in-chief at Teen Vogue back in 2017. And she made history because not only was she the youngest person to ever hold an editor-in-chief position at Condé Nast, which Anna Wintour also has a lot of impact on and and a lot of um, power, um, she was also the first Black person and Black woman to have this. So on one hand, yes, I was there where we celebrated the fact that Elaine Wilteroff was in this position and we were seeing, um, you know, a lot of, um, initiatives when it comes to diversity and inclusion actually manifest. But on the other hand, it can, it's, it's, it's so, it's so, why did it take so long? And I think that's mm-hmm. the argument people are making like, okay, yes, Anna Winter has um, pushed for these DE&I initiatives and we've seen some changes. I have seen changes, but first of all, it took too long. And like you said, a lot of it goes back to these implicit biases that people have that they don't even know. So Anna Wintour is being accused of, of fostering this uh, a toxic, racist work environment, and to me, that speaks to how dangerous white supremacy is. It's pervasive, and a lot of times people are operating under these veils, and they don't even know how dangerous it is. How dangerous it is. Sometimes they do know. Like honestly, Anna Wintour should have known not to use the term "picking any." That I'm not going to give her any slack about. But other things, when you're operating and from a, a purely white lens and the entire world has been centered around you and glorifies you, it's hard to see anything outside of it. And it really goes back to the education. We have to really educate people, starting with children about white supremacy, racism, and in our history so that we can finally overcome it. Stanley, one of our comments from TJ
2: Donovan on LinkedIn, thank you TJ, says, you know people are jumping on the Black Lives Matter movement just for show. Do you think she's one of those people? Because she is kind of paving the way for growth in the fashion industry. It is a really stagnant and white industry. So how do we hold her accountable as someone that's clearly problematic, but visibly trying to be an ally?
1: Just real quick. I mean, white people weaponize allyship all the time because it works in their favor. And you can weaponize allyship or even try to be an ally by still doing problematic white things. Those things actually do happen. And I think the way that we can hold her accountable is to actually hold her accountable, remove her from her position, explain why she's removed from the position, then give her a chance to like, make up for the pain that she's caused. But only if she's willing to make up for the pain that she's caused, because she has caused damage. Even those of us who are the best of allies can fall short. I don't think she's a real ally, though. That's just my point of view.
2: Well, we're getting a lot of comments about allyship and changed behavior. Keep that same energy, y'all, because it's time for our main segment. And I'm very curious to see what Alicia Garza has to say about the movement and how it gets commodified,
1: possibly. Thank you so much for that, Tammy. So I will take the lead over here. So I'm hyped. Selena is usually the one that kind of like anchors the shows when we have these main conversations, but I'm doing it today. So. Bear with me. So I am very excited about the guest that we are gonna be having on the show today. Um, Her name is Alicia Garza. So for those of you who do not know, um, Alicia is a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, a longtime organizer and activist in the work, someone who has done this work on multiple levels, and now has put out a book. And this book, um, for those of you who haven't read it, I have, it is an amazing read, very easy and quick to get through with so many gems. It's called The Purpose of Power, how we come together when we fall apart. And some folks have described the book as like an essential guide to building transformative movements to address the changes of our time. And other folks have even said that it's the new age rules for radicals. For those of you who are not um, all into the activism space, Rules for Radicals is a book that was written by Saul Alinsky. He was an organizer in the um, 40s, 50s and 60s. Um, And it was his last book that came out and it was a pragmatic way to think about organizing and building power in the current movement moment. Anyone who has done some organizing work has either been given this book, recommended this book or heard this book. But in the last couple of years, people have been saying that the philosophies in the book don't necessarily make sense. They don't make sense for black liberation organizing and they don't make sense for um, overall movement organizing in general. So Alicia's book comes at a very interesting time where folks might actually have the ability to use that as a new blueprint. So I'm very happy to have her on the show today. It's gonna be a great conversation and we're really gonna be able to cover a lot of things. So real quick, I just wanna make sure she's on with us now. Alicia, are you there? I'm here, hi.
0: Hi, Alicia. Ah, Oh my God, yes.
1: So
3: good to have you. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Y'all are going
1: in. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's how we
2: do you know
1: as it should be as it should be so just real quick before we get into the conversation i just got to say um you you won't know this obviously five years ago you spoke at justice works for citizen action of new york yes. and i was there as a visitor and when you finished your speech everyone was crying and i said to myself i want to work at a place where people like her can come and be in leadership and speak and then I got a job there, and I'm still there now, okay. As a director, So thank you to you for like inspiring me to like try to work in that space and create in that space. But you know, you've got this book out. I had a chance to read it. I sped through it in a day and a half. I was up like three in the morning, like really getting through to it. Um, air, like dog giving stuff, underlining things, and I know what I've taken away from the book. But what do you want people to take away from this when they have read the book to completion? <laughs>
3: Yes, thank you so much. Well, first of all, shout out to Citizen Action Folk. Um, You know, for me, this book was really an opportunity to kind of zoom out, right? I, I think for the last seven years, it's been a complete whirlwind. And after the 2016 election, I really wanted to take a step back and do some reflection on what I was learning, what I was unlearning, and what I still have left to learn. A lot of people don't know that I've been organizing for a long time before BLM (laughs) and BLM I think in a lot of ways crystallized a lot of things for me but it also exposed me to some of the gaps that I see across the country in terms of um, real infrastructure for organizing. This is really the book that I would have wanted when I first started getting into activism. The other thing I really wanted to do with this book honestly is to start to tell our own stories. I mean, here's the thing, everybody has been talking about BLM, there's tons of books about BLM, but it's like things get written about you without you (laughs) and it loses some of its texture, right? So what I really wanted to do was to take a step back and tell our own story about what BLM is, but it's actually not really a BLM book. It's a book about organizing, it's a book about movement building, And my hope with this book, quite frankly, was that we would be able to demystify what change work looks like. So many people see uh, everything that happens on social media and they confuse that with organizing. And then of course, the most visible part of movements that folks see is protests. And protests are important, but there's all this work that happens before and all this work that happens after that a lot of people don't get access to. So I wanted to show what that looked like
1: a different question for you, but I'm going to do a a bit of an audible real quick because I know one of the things in the work that I get a little uncomfortable with, especially when I'm speaking on platforms, is when folks call me um, an an activist or even sometimes when they call me an organizer because, I mean, I still do organizing work, but a lot of my work is advocacy, so it's organizing in a different space. Um, Do you think there's a difference between activism and organizing? And if so, what is it?
3: Yeah, I do. And this is such a good question. I mean, look, both are important. And I think often activism is people's entry point to organizing. Some people don't get there and that's okay. But I see activism as really um, the individual work that you do (laughs) um, to, to help create change. So activism can be going to a protest. Activism can be sending a letter to your elected officials. Um, But organizing is actually the process of bringing people together to um, achieve a goal, to achieve a common goal. And so it involves building relationships. It involves helping people understand why the things that are happening to us are happening to us, who's responsible. And then it also requires us coming together and building a plan to change the things that we can't Uh, take any longer. And that is a different kind of work that I think is less individualized. It's much more group-based. And so again, there's not a one is better or worse, but I agree with you. I I feel like words mean things. (laughs) And um, I like to be specific and on point when I use certain words, and um, activism and organizing is not interchangeable, but they are all related.
1: Thank you so much for that, thank you. So, Selena, when I give you a hard time sometimes, that's why. Yeah. Um But, um... Don't so <laughs>
3: This sounds like an A and B conversation.
1: Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, I like the best, <laughs> That's my sister right there. But- <laughs> One of the things you talked about in your book, when you said like to, to win and build power, you need organizing and organizations. But you also talked about the work that you've done has always been in multiracial organizations. Um, so my organization is the same thing as multiracial, but that's complicated in lots of ways. And so much so that a lot of people have started to feel like, at least like black folks are like moving into organizations that are about black liberation, but only with black organizing and black centric ideology. Um, what is the importance if you think there is for multiracial organizing in this work?
3: Well, I think it's essential. And I do talk about this in the book that I believe that what we need in terms of change in this country is actually to build a multiracial democracy. And essentially what that means is breaking the pattern of old white dudes running everything and making all the rules. (laughs) I actually feel like we need our own folks in positions of power and they can't just be in those positions. They have to also reflect and represent a different kind of vision for how um, how we work together. At the same time, I talk in the book about some of the pitfalls of shallow multiracial organizing. And I also talk about the ways in which, for a lot of people, Black-only spaces is very threatening. And I've seen this over the last couple of years. And I tell a story in the book about, you know, being a part of a multiracial group. And it was right in in the kind of beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement and everything kind of exploding across the world. And we were discussing some political education that we were going to do that week. And it seemed to me, it made sense for us to talk about black people turning up all over the world. But this person felt like we were talking too much about black people and that essentially we needed to do this like one for one kind of thing. And that was their approach to multiracial organizing. And I don't believe in that approach. I actually think that we need to do two things. One, if we're gonna have a multiracial democracy, our communities have to be organized. And the fact of the matter is Black communities are deeply under-organized. We've been deeply under-invested in, and that is a big part of why we lack some of the power that we need to make the changes that we deserve. But the other thing is that because white supremacy functions the way that it does, we tell ourselves and each other stories about ourselves and each other that actually serve to um, deepen and widen the gaps and the wedges between us as opposed to um, strengthen the relationships among us. And if we don't do that work together, but also inside of our own communities, um, what happens is that that alliance, right, um, it's very weak. And especially under pressure, it will break easily. And we've seen this before, right? We see the ways in which this administration, for example, tries to use the, 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 the issue of immigration as a wedge issue around black people. But the thing is, black folks are immigrants, right? Also, I mean, we are not a monolith. We come from everywhere. And, you know, black immigration has increased over the last 10 years in a way that I think should complicate the immigration conversation. But we don't tend to have that level of depth when we're talking about what is the basis of relationship between us and so what gets in the in the way is the stories that um, other people tell about us that actually keep us from having strong bonds and being able to fight together. So I really wanted to make the point in this book that we have to take very seriously the task of relationship building and that it can't be like college uh, catalog style right where you got one person. We're not actually doing the work to um, really interrogate what what keeps us apart so that we can be stronger together.
1: Thank you so much for that. I want to throw it to my co-host, Tammy. I know she has a great question for you.
4: Yeah, so thank you for coming and, and sort of discussing how you think about power and strategy within organizing because to me, as one of the most successful organizers that now I can say I personally know, Um, a lot of what, you know, we as baby activists and baby organizers gain are your lessons on building coalitions. Um, I do know that something that a lot of us are told to read, like Stanley hinted earlier, is a book called Rules for Radicals, which is something that um, for those of you who don't know, has been a foundation of a lot of nonprofits and organizing for years. It is a book published in 1971 by Saul Alinsky that essentially creates these rules for what good strategy and good political organization look like. Now, some of the awesome—I uh, don't want to say critique, because that's not the right word—but some of the the praise that is coming out of this book is that it totally takes those rules and updates them and creates them for a new multiracial movement of people within 2020 so I wanted to ask you um, do you feel at all that your book is similar to rules for radicals was it in any way influenced and honestly be be honest do you see it as a new blueprint like rules for radicals well, I will be honest and say, of course, I've read Rules
3: for Radicals. And I think my biggest critique of it is that it doesn't engage the question of race in strategy or in organizing. And so essentially, Rules for Radicals does a lot to say things like, meet people where they are. But it doesn't actually talk to you about how to challenge where people are at while also moving together in a common direction. And I think for me in this book, I wanted to not just demystify how organizing happens, but also make a case for why it is that we need to pay close attention to the issues of race and class and gender and all of the different ways in which the rules of this society have been rigged against our communities for a very long time and that it serves a purpose. And I think What is hard about the rules for radicals um, tradition is that it assumes a level of neutrality that I don't think exists. Everything around us um, is organized by these systems that shape our lives. And so our organizing approach also has to take that into consideration. For me, I really wanted a compass for us to be able to follow To build the kind of movement that I think we deserve. And some of this was inspired, honestly, by all the questions that I get from people all the time about how to and what if and how do I navigate this. And I realized there's not a lot of literature or or anything out there that really helps to break this down. For example, I have a whole chapter about identity politics. And you all know that identity politics as a term has been. Um, demonized and weaponized by the conservative movement. Not only do they call it like politically correct, but they also make this argument that it's dangerous because it divides people. Well, I take that on head on because I think that's BS. I mean, that's true in the sense that if you don't have to think about your identity (laughs) anytime, then sure, you might see it as being threatening. But for those of us who are black or women or queer We walk out into the world and no matter what, we have to deal with our identities, whether we want to or not. And so I do, I take this question on and I've even heard um, people in our movement um, disparage the notion of identity politics. Certainly there's a way in which identity politics, when not deeply understood, is um, not practiced correctly. But there are all these ways in which if we don't actually adopt and take on identity politics as our own, um, we we stand to kind of repeat the same challenges that we've been facing forever. And I also challenge our movement to stop parroting right-wing talking points and thinking that we're original. (laughs) We have to be really careful about the ways in which we sometimes knock down our own stuff, not realizing we're parroting a strategy and a set of talking points that actually weren't meant for us in the first place.
1: Lisa, you are spitting bars right now. Just a, a couple of quick things. So one, um, one thing that Sololinsky misses is that racial and gender analysis, because he doesn't understand what the feminist caucus of the young lords intrinsically understood, which is the personal is a political. You cannot separate. I cannot so I'm not a woman, obviously, but Selena, my sister, and Sammy, my sisters, they can't separate the fact that they're black from there being women. Right. Um, someone who is in the LGBTQIA community cannot separate that from the fact that they might be white, like the personal the political intertwine. So quote-unquote, identity politics is important. We all have identities. And whiteness and the construct of white supremacy, the whole purpose of it is to erase those identities in exchange for power. So it's really important for folks to understand that. But like when we're talking about these constructs of white supremacy and how people move into that space, another thing that white supremacy does is make people believe, or white people particularly, and white men believe, that they deserve to be in a space and speak up and be heard because that's that's it. But one of the things that we haven't had deep conversations about is the way that sometimes Black men, because of their cis maleness, Mm -hmm. also have that level of entitlement. And I'm editorializing a little bit here, but I want to switch it over and talk about some celebrity activism. Mm -hmm. So in your book, you say, like, you can't have a movement if there's no people behind you. And as you were saying that, you're reading this in a book, I was watching the Roland Martin interview with Ice Cube, where Mm -hmm. you came on, you legitimized all the work you've been doing, and asked to work with him, and then he criticized he criticized the work and then said that nothing was happening. But now people are looking at him like a celebrity activist. You also mentioned De- DeRay Davis when you talked about celebrity activism. Can you just talk about that a little bit more about what was missing with Cube and what we can't fall in love with when it comes to celebrity culture and the activist space?
3: Yeah, I can. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to give a dissertation here, but part of what I was saying to Cube is that you can't have a movement if there's not people helping to push it forward. And I think where we agree is that for too long, both parties have really um, not given due diligence to the needs and concerns of Black communities. That's a fact, and that's where we agree. I think where we disagree is the conclusion that we come to. And his conclusion is that none of the work that has happened up until his contract with Black America um, is worth anything, has done anything. I think he also tied some of this stuff to like establishment politics. Um, and I think, you know, uh, um, being generous, I think it just represents and reflects a real lack of knowledge about um, black liberation movements, about this period of movement. And I-, I feel sad that he is not aware that there are so many organizations and individuals who are working together and actually creating change. And some of the stuff I think that folks are doing are things that he would want to be a part of. I think what I also took issue with is that you know, ultimately, I talked about um, the work I do at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund, where we've been moving a Black agenda actually um, since February, and 70,000 Black voters have signed on um, to that agenda and are using that agenda to make decisions up and down the ballot as we speak. You know, change doesn't just happen by talking to people in power and um, engaging with them as if there's a transaction that can happen over a conference table. I think that really reflects a deep misunderstanding of how change happens. Um, and I think it's um, unfortunate in the sense that he does have a huge platform that he could be using um, to help move forward some of the changes that he wants to see, but not isolated or, you know, as a as a kind of a small part of a bigger circle, I think that there's a way in which celebrity activism sometimes looks like and feels like somebody just woke up and decided they wanted to be a change maker. And they think that just having a platform is how they'll do that. Um, I will say that we've learned from people like you know Harry Belafonte, Mr. B um who certainly um, had deep celebrity and used his platform to help push movements forward. But what was so important about the way that he did that and so impactful is that he got in where he fit in. Um, Mr. B wasn't out here talking about I've now got my own initiative right. and you need to listen to me because I'm a celebrity. no, he recognized that his celebrity came from, communities who are being impacted by racism. And so what he wanted to do was help to push forward the struggle against racism using his platform and using his resources. The last thing I'll just offer here is that in the book, I do talk a lot about how it is that change happens. And I try to counter some of these myths that um, get thrown around a ton. I mean, we can't go into all the things about cis malehood and what's going on right now with our brothers. But I will say this, Um, this is one of the main mandates that we have as a generation is to make new mistakes. And I really look forward to working together to figuring out, you know, how do we address the underlying problem without throwing each other under the bus? And I think that's a new mistake and lesson that we need to learn in this period.
0: Absolutely, Alicia. I just want to say, like, can I just compliment you? Cause you didn't only just show up and like preach a good word today, but you just look so bomb Thank and you. so flawless, like the Bob and everything, the lip, everything works, girl. But you. um, and you know, super happy to have you here. And I also I did want to just throw something, you know, talk about something else because you know, in 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 regard to the book and in regard to the conversations that we're having, you recently tweeted that and I think an FBI official stopped by your home last week. Uh, It turns out that um, your name was on a target list in the home of a man in Idaho, who the FBI believes was working with a white supremacist group. And you've talked about this before. But you know, I want to talk about it here. Why do you think white terrorists and these groups are growing under the Trump administration? And how do you think do you think they're getting the coverage that they deserve, these type of stories?
3: No, they're not getting the coverage that they deserve. And I've been saying this for months now, ever since the George Floyd protests, there's been increased threats on my life, the life of my co-founders and so many activists um, across the nation. And I think um, some pieces of media are really just falling right into that and not asking enough questions. So I saw this week, for example, that, you know, in Minneapolis where they started talking about BLM protesters rioting and looting, that actually what was happening was that there were right-wing agitators in those protests who were shooting at police stations and um, trying to blend in to create chaos. And actually there were a few individuals this week who were arrested um, for doing that. And I think this trend of domestic terror is not getting enough coverage. I think that um, some of it has to do with like anti-Blackness, right? (laughs) And people feel like every time Black folks turn up that there's going to be a broken window or, you know, there's like an association with a level of militants that I think um, is stereotypical in a weird way. But the other piece of it is that, you know, we're no longer talking about um, the the seventeen year old who brought an AK forty seven to a protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and shot and killed two people. Um, we are no longer talking about the fact that uh, you know the weekend before the grand jury announced its decision in the Breonna Taylor case that who emerged right were right wing militias who were armed and were counter protesting BLM protesters. And I think it's important for people to understand that this administration has given a license for racial terror uh, to replace rules and laws. And frankly, that is very, 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 very dangerous. My story is not unique. It is just a example of the ways in which this administration not only traffics in lies and misinformation and disinformation but they also traffic in in white nationalism and white supremacy. And that's not an academic term. I mean, literally, just a couple of weeks ago on the debate stage, the president told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. This week in, or this past week in the presidential debates, uh, he repeated a false trope about Black Lives Matter that is designed to amp people up and agitate them around this notion that BLM is rioting and looting. When actually, what we found is that in ninety-seven percent of Black Lives Matter protests, there is no rioting, there's no looting, there's no violence. But in that 3% where it is, it's because there are people who are not a part of the protests who are showing up to those protests armed. And those are the cases that we see. Vice News reported on this just a few weeks ago. So I just, I I feel like we have an imperative to be able to tell bigger stories that are more honest uh, and based in fact and not trafficking in lies.
0: Absolutely,
4: thank you, Alicia. So that makes sense, right? But here's something that I've been kind of struggling with in this election. I know that the white supremacy has gotten out of control since 45 entered office, and organizers like you are faced with the brunt of it having personal attacks. However, I've also seen that there's a strong counter reaction to that, where more and more people are sort of stepping up against white supremacy and showing up. So I want to ask you, not sort of who you're voting for, but which presidency do you think would be easier to organize under and will fuel more new activists? Which one will give more resources and more opportunities? Well, I certainly think,
3: a Biden administration would be a vote, not only against fascism, but also a vote against white supremacy and racial terror. It's pretty basic to me. Biden was not my first choice, my second choice, my third choice, my fourth choice, my fifth choice, or my sixth choice, but child, this is what we're dealing with right now. It's Biden-Harris versus Pence-Trump. And I am super clear that a Pence-Trump administration is not only not desirable in terms of policy, but it's dangerous in terms of activism and organizing. I will also just offer here that I know people are frustrated about this election and I get it. I'm telling you my top choice was Elizabeth Warren. Um, I still think she would have been a better president. We could have had a bad one, but you know, things happen. Um, But I I do think, that this points to just being clear about what's at stake in this election cycle. And frankly, you're absolutely right that elections are a time for us to demonstrate how well we are organizing, how many hearts and minds we have captured. They're also an opportunity for us to pick the terrain we wanna fight on. And I don't wanna spend another four years fighting Trump-Pence. I would rather spend another four years fighting Biden-Harris to do better and be better just like they are promising in their campaign. What we know is that politicians are politicians, but where change happens is where movements get clear about what agenda we're pushing and what accountability looks like. We have to drive towards a situation where um, there are consequences if if our agenda is not moved. And that means people can lose their jobs, right? (laughs) Or they lose our support. And we have to be able to get strong enough to um, demonstrate that level of power.
0: Alicia, as we bring this conversation to a close, um, I would be amiss to not ask to get some of your thoughts on Black Lives Matter and ask that. Do you think the movement has been co-opted or commodified? I, I think we kind of touched on that a little earlier when we talked about celebrity activism. But, you know, what? how do you feel about that? And then lastly, what needs to be done so that Black lives will finally matter beyond November 3rd, no matter who gets elected?
3: Yeah, well, the quick answer to that question is, we have to keep building and growing this movement. We've got to stay focused on addition and multiplication, not subtraction and division. And I think that, yes, absolutely. Anytime a movement breaks into the mainstream, uh, the mainstream tries to devour it in the way that it's used to, right? Which is fully through consumerism. So yes, we have seen so many symbolic displays of Black Lives Matter. But it is up to us to make sure that our actual movement doesn't get co-opted. Um, Black Lives Matter is a phrase. It has turned into a lot, in a lot of ways, a brand. But there is still a movement behind it that is pushing forward important changes that need to happen for Black Lives to Matter, from the BREATHE Act that has been introduced by the Movement for Black Lives, which I see as our uh, Generation Civil Rights Act, um, to our Black Agenda 2020, which talks about how to make Black Lives Matter from City Hall all the way to Congress, and is informed by tens of thousands of Black people from across this country We have a lot of work to do to be able to push this agenda forward. And I think we should assume, right, that there will always be people who want to be close to the heat, Um, but we have to stay focused on making sure that we turn up the heat by changing rules, changing policies, and continuing to change culture. No,
4: No. (laughs)
1: nothing. just real quick. You know, we got a couple minutes left. Just like before we let you go, can you please just let folks know where they can get your book? and like how they can support the work that you're
3: doing everywhere and actually this week it came out in the uk and today it came out in germany so you know we global with this thing (laughs) but you can buy it anywhere you get your books my plug would be to buy from an independent bookseller and a black bookstore if you can swing it i know i've been directing folks to marcus books in oakland which is the oldest black bookstore in the country but we also know that there are several more across the nation that could use your support,
4: especially Sisters in Harlem, Harlem. Okay. represent. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> so get your books anywhere you can, but please, please, please get them from an independent bookseller. And that would be amazing. And if you want to follow the work that we're up to, you can um, hit my website, aliciagarza.com. You can also go to Black, the number two, future.org to learn more about the Black Census, the Black Agenda 2020, and also the COVID-19 Relief and Recovery Plan for Black America, which we are going to continue to fight for no matter who's in the White House. Last thing I'll offer here is that what I'm so excited about for next year is that we launched a policy institute this year to help train Black people to make the rules and change the rules. And we're going to be choosing uh, three campaigns to support starting in January 2021. We've trained 39 Black folks this year from nine states on how to make the rules and change the rules. And now we're going to be supporting them um, in real time in cities and states across the country. So. You want to find out more about what we're doing, again, hit us up, black2thefuture.org. And vote. Yes. Thank Amazing. you so much.
1: Yeah. Oh,
3: Thank you for having me. This was awesome.
1: No problem. Our pleasure. So for those of you who live in New York City, come to Harlem. We got Sisters Bookstore on 157th Street in Amsterdam. You can get you a nice copy of her book over there. They also have a first edition copy of the Black Panther book, which they refused to sell to me because no, <laughs> I'm guilty about that, but I respect it. So I wanna just wrap this conversation up a little bit. For those of you who are, you know, who are not necessarily too deep into organizing activism, the advocacy spaces and the work that's happening on Black liberation, I'm really happy that you were able to be a part of this conversation. But one of the things you need to do in order to be committed to and focused in Black liberation is arming yourself with the kind of education that will help to decolonize your mind from those mm-hmm. structures that white supremacy has built. Alicia's book is a blueprint to help you do that. It doesn't just talk about the world as it is, but the world as it could be, what accountability looks like, what organizing should and can be, and the ways that we win. It is the Is it the only piece that we have to do that? Absolutely not, but it is a very essential first step. And as we step into this world on November 3rd, which might be Armageddon or Armageddon Light, depending on how the results go, we need to be equipped with the knowledge, the tools, the people, and the resources to make sure that Black liberation is something that is attainable, even if it is not in our lifetime. And as we're doing that work, never forget, you are not a movement. A movement is a combination of people, working together for the liberation of all people. And power is useless when you hold it in the hands of one person. If you have power, your job is to empower someone else to see the power within themselves and then give them the tools so that they can do that to somebody else. So with that being said, folks, thanks so much for joining us. Lisa, thanks for being a guest on the show. Let's keep reading, let's keep fighting, let's keep loving on each other. Yes, and- thank you.
0: Guests. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alicia.